Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo lifted all remaining COVID-19 restrictions this week, including requirements for mask wearing, social distancing, and capacity limits at events. The move came as the state reached the governor's goal of 70% of adults receiving at least one dose of the vaccine. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. 70% vaccination. It is the national goal, and we hit it ahead of schedule. Cuomo, in a campaign-style event held before a cheering crowd of union leaders and others at the World Trade Center, says the goal was reached, according to numbers compiled by the CDC, sometime on Monday. The number of New Yorkers who are fully vaccinated, meaning they've received all of their required doses two or more weeks ago, is significantly lower, at around 50 percent, according to numbers from the state health department. That's far less than what scientists say is enough people vaccinated to reach herd immunity from the virus. Children under the age of 12 are not yet eligible for a vaccine, and in some rural and urban low-income areas, less than 35 percent are fully vaccinated. Despite that, Cuomo says there will no longer be any state-imposed restrictions at restaurants, gyms, and hair salons, or for concerts or social gatherings. The state mandates that have proven right and correct and brought us through this pandemic are relaxed as of today. Cuomo handed out awards to the union leaders for the essential work their members performed during COVID while others were able to stay safely at home. Representing the food and hospitality workers. The governor says in celebration of New York's milestone, all state-owned buildings will be lit with blue and gold lighting and there will be fireworks displays in cities across the state. In his remarks, the governor recounted how New York went from the world epicenter of the coronavirus in the spring of 2020 to now having the lowest infection rate in the nation. He also listed building projects that his administration has completed in recent years, saying he hopes there will be more progress in the post-pandemic era. First new airport in 25 years in this nation and the new JFK airport and new airports upstate New York. There was no mention at the event of the over 2 million New Yorkers who were sickened by the coronavirus or the over 40,000 New Yorkers who died from COVID or of their grieving friends and families. And not all of the pandemic-related restrictions are yet over. Even though New York no longer requires special rules, federal regulations still apply. Masks continue to be required on public transit and in healthcare settings. The CDC continues to recommend that unvaccinated people continue to wear masks and children who are not yet eligible for the vaccine will have to wear masks inside the schools.
The celebratory announcement comes as Cuomo faces multiple scandals, including allegations of sexual harassment and, in one case, sexual assault, and accusations that he and his top aides covered up the true number of nursing home residents who died from the virus. He also faces allegations that he gave family and friends special access to COVID tests and used staff to help him write a memoir. There are ongoing federal and state investigations, and the state assembly is conducting an impeachment inquiry. The governor could have been speaking about what he hopes is his own political comeback when he recounted the societal efforts needed to fully recover from the long pandemic. What do you do when you get knocked down? Do you stay down? Do you feel sorry for yourself? Do you wallow? Are you overcome by the obstacles? Or do you pull yourself up and say, I'm going to learn and I'm going to be better? Although the state COVID-related restrictions are now over, the governor still holds the emergency powers granted to him at the start of the pandemic by the state legislature. The state Senate and Assembly did not act to rescind the temporary powers before they adjourned the legislative session for the summer. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartog. Alan, from the New York Times, Cuomo's inner circle raised money for aid who was convicted of bribery. That's aide Joseph Percoco, the close friend of Governor Andrew Cuomo, who was convicted for soliciting and accepting more than $300,000 in bribes from executives with businesses before the state. The governor distanced himself at the time, calling the rule of law paramount, no tolerance for corruption. But privately, members of the governor's inner circle including one of his sisters, have for years been raising money for Mr. Prococo. According to interviews and newly obtained emails, the sister Madeline made the point of saying that Governor Andrew Cuomo had no knowledge that she was doing this. It was done privately. Piperora said when he announced these federal indictments of Prococo and friend that the governor was not being charged. That led a lot of people to say, how could it be that Cuomo didn't know anything about his two closest assistants? The point is that this is not good for Cuomo. Of all of the things that I have read, this one becomes extremely dangerous. You know, the idea that his people are raising money for somebody who Cuomo himself said there was no tolerance for wrongdoing is, I think, the most dangerous of the things that have happened to him in terms of accusations. And now that it's out, there will be an awful lot of people following up. A very dangerous moment for the governor. To New York City, the candidates clashed in the final mayoral debate. Eric Adams and Andrew Yang leading the pack. You had quite an interesting discussion on your Capital Connection program this week with Lee Maringoff, the head of the Marist College Institute of Public Opinion, the Marist Poll, who got into this conversation with you about ranked choice voting. And specifically, you asked him about bullet voting. It was fascinating. 
Well, it was. What happens is this ranked choice voting involves a transference of voting. You list the top five, and the others, like in musical chairs when you were a kid, are eliminated. There's one chair too little. So it apparently works. They've done it in places like Maine and other places. Nevertheless, bullet voting is an interesting one. Let's just say you want Eric Adams. I'm picking him because he is the leader right now. And you don't want any of the others to gain any traction. So what you do is you bullet vote. You vote for one guy, and you don't list the other four. You just vote for one person. That deprives everybody else of a second or third or fourth or fifth place vote. And it's going to take a while for everybody to figure it all out. But it is an interesting system because there have been complaints for years that your person didn't win, but somebody won who you didn't have anything in common with. This way, by ranked choice voting, you get to name not only your first place, but somebody else who you could live with. We extend your conversation for a moment with Lee Maringoff of the Marist Poll, because one of the things he noted, it was sort of a throwaway line, but the idea that turnout is very, very low in mayoral elections. I see even in the Syracuse mayoral primary, under 300 votes were cast during the first four early voting days. You know, you think about all the attempts nationally to curb voting rights, and yet you and I have talked for how many years about the lack of voting, that people are not motivated to go out and do their constitutional democratic duty. David, people will do that when they have a close race and they know who everybody is. I get the distinct feeling uh, that in the New York mayoral primary, for example, <laughs> there are a number of candidates, most of whom have not caught fire. But the one thing that came out in the discussion with pollster Maringoff, who is, of course, the best of all pollsters, is the idea that external events tend to call the shots. So, for example... You have murders all over New York City right now, a lot in Albany, relatively, in other places. So what happens then is the law and order candidate catches fire, as in the case of Eric Adams in New York City, who is, after all, a former police captain and who is a law and order guy. Well, this plays right into his hands, and he's leading, and I'm not surprised by that. So you have to watch what's going on at the same time. I mean, we have had a huge movement, appropriate, of course, of Black Lives Matter. And that led, of course, to police reform, the concept of how are you going to make sure that policemen are recruited and we find the right people and they're in their jobs and they are of the highest moral caliber. If it doesn't happen that way, things change. So right now, because of the external events, you better believe that Adams is leading because nobody wants to be subjected to walking out of their house in a big city and shot indiscriminately out of a car. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Three bills intended to upgrade U.S. drinking water systems and address toxic pollutants took a step forward this week as the conversation in Washington, D.C. focused on a wide-ranging infrastructure package, the Aqua Act, the Low-Income Water Customer Assistance Programs Act, and the PFAS Action Act were advanced out of the Environment and Climate Change Subcommittee and now will be considered by the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which is chaired by Congressman Paul Tonko. The Democrat from New York's 20th District spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard about the legislation. It takes in all perspectives. It addresses uh, the infrastructure of our uh, much-needed water supply uh, that gets to the home place, workplace, um, school place uh, with additional monies. It addresses lead pipes and speaks to the, uh, the concern for the dangerous element of PFAS. So the PFAS Action Act actually passed before in 2020, moved to the Senate, but it went nowhere. Obviously, there's a different dynamic in Washington now, but there's still a pretty thin margin there and about as thin as it can get in the Senate. Well, I think, you know, the public awareness, the public consciousness of PFAS has only grown. I know that, you know, in visiting and touring a number of the systems in our area, speaking to the mayors and local officials, uh, there's a grave concern for water systems in general. But as it re- in regard to PFAS, uh, there are just people very concerned. We look at some of the activities close to home like that at Hoosick Falls, and the community was outraged by this PFAS contamination. Um, and, you know, it was highly respected uh, that high school students from the area spoke out. They wanted to know that these contaminants were removed. So it has, that has only grown as a public health issue, um, and we have the responsibilities uh, as a subcommittee on environment and climate change, as chair of that subcommittee, reporting to the Standing Committee on Energy and Commerce. I believe that it's our responsibility to be a passionate voice, to push for um, these programs, and to clearly indicate the high degree of urgency that uh, wraps around these programs. Part of this package of uh, legislation that's advancing today would set standards for PFAS chemicals as well as uh, 1,4-dioxane and other compounds that are commonly found. Right. uh, And I think that requirement to have EPA set the standards and make certain that they are dealing with the science of it uh, is very important, that uh, they have these standards so that um, it would... uh, uh, respond to the needs that people um, uh, see because they're troubled with these new contaminants. Do you think that these clean water provisions would make it through a final version? There will be some back and forth, I imagine, uh, with Republicans. That's been going on for weeks now about the size of the infrastructure bill. You know, there people may argue about the price tag, but look, in the wealthiest nation in the world, how is it that we can allow our children to drink water from lead uh, pipes uh, that you know that is just unacceptable, and the corresponding damage, you know, the dollars placed into this program far uh, get outweighed by the damage that's done uh, to our children, and that's a lifetime worth of damage. So it it really behooves us to move forward uh, with the the focus on our children and the impact on their health health quality of health as we go forward. That's Democratic New York Congressman Paul Tonko of the 20th District speaking with the Legislative Gazette's 
Lucas Willard. Tonko chairs the House Energy and Commerce Committee. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us on the Legislative Gazette this week, Matthew Schweber. He is a lawyer with the firm Feuerstein Kulik LLP out of Manhattan, and he is someone who has focused on the challenges in his role as a lawyer for aspiring marijuana businesses. He knows about the social equity programs in New York, and with the turn of the new law now making adult recreational cannabis use legal and all that entails, we've invited him to be on the program to talk about this from a legal perspective. Matthew Schweber, thanks so much for joining us on the Legislative Gazette. Oh, David, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, Matthew, how did you find yourself involved with legal matters, particularly as it relates to cannabis and cannabis business and the legal issues surrounding it? So, David, that's a fascinating question. Uh, it's it's hardly where my pedigree would have expected you to, to, to find me. I began at a number of very large Wall Street firms out of law school. Uh, and then the last Wall Street firm that I worked for was a spinoff firm. We did a lot of employment work, and I had a former client who called me one day, seemingly out of the blue. I had not spoken to him in a number of years, and he asked me how to grow marijuana legally in California. He had overextended himself in some real estate investments and was grappling with the issue. And he told me that all the lawyers in cannabis in California, and this was back in 2011, were right out of law school. And uh, he asked me what I knew about the law. I said, nothing, go away. I, I, see no reason, I see no way that I can possibly represent you without running afoul of federal law. And he begged me, and I finally acquiesced. And uh, I looked at the issue and found it fascinating. And um, I ended up spending a lot of time going to conferences and handing out cards. And for a very long time, most of my clients were on the West Coast. But over the past couple of years, that has shifted, and the firm that I started working with in 2017 now represents clients everywhere, and we're very focused on New York and New Jersey at the moment. Well, we are in New York, and of course, we know about New Jersey. We know about Massachusetts and Vermont and Connecticut coming, and so a lot of that surrounding state commerce has pushed New York into this now legalizing cannabis. But setting up a business isn't so easy, is it, Matthew? No, it isn't. I mean, there's, first of all, there are all the challenges of obtaining a license, and they are substantial. Trying to identify real estate is probably the, what your chief priority, and finding real estate that has needs to meet a certain group of criteria is difficult in its own right. In order, what you need to really do is find real estate that is unencumbered by more, a mortgage, because very often mortgages in real estate uh, have clauses in them that allow the, comp the bank that owns it 
to call the mortgage if the property is being used for any illegal purpose. And even though marijuana will be legal at the state law is legal in New York, it will not be at the federal level. And as a consequence, a landlord risks the possibility of his mortgage being called. So the, the first task is to try to find real estate that's unencumbered. Then the licensing process is quite arduous as well. Matthew, let me interrupt you. What do you mean by unencumbered? Real estate that's unencumbered. Meaning an unencumbered by a mortgage, right? So typically what we advise clients to do is to find real estate that is owned outright by the landlord. That's not encumbered by a bank mortgage. Got it. And then there's the challenge of the the application process. Uh, Well, first of all, even before you get to the application process, the good idea is to procure local support for where, what you intend your business to be, whether that's a cultivation business, a processing business, or a dispensary, so that the community is not opposed to what you're trying to accomplish. And then there, the application process is arduous in its own right. It's typically something that takes, oh, I don't know, hundreds of hours in order to complete. Uh, it's not something that I would encourage any entrepreneur to do on their own. It requires a great deal of expertise, and the answers to some of these questions are just not things that you can look up. It's an area in which our law firm happens to specialize in drafting applications uh, for aspiring entrepreneurs. We've done so in a multitude of states throughout the country. Uh, We have a pretty good track record as well. So you submit your application, and then the hope is that uh, you are among the highest scoring applicants and that you're awarded a license. And then the challenges begin anew because uh, unfortunately marijuana companies, unlike say local supermarkets or a local bodega, are really not entitled to bank loans or the kinds of traditional financing that small entrepreneurs are reliant upon. Cannabis companies have to go out and raise private capital, which is a challenge in its own right. Right. There are about five different roads I could go down now with everything that you said. But let's start with the fact that capital is involved. You mentioned working for law firms on Wall Street and Manhattan. And of course, we think about venture capitalists when we think about the big cities. And, you know, this is a rich man's business. And yet there's this whole social equity part of this. The whole point and what they fought for heavily in the legislation was to make sure that those that traditionally were hurt by many of the Rockefeller, some called draconian drug laws that put often black and brown people behind bars for many years for small amounts, while oftentimes those who were wealthy and maybe white skin could get away with it more easily, they wanted those that had suffered to benefit from this. But as you're pointing out, there's a couple of problems here. One is it's expensive. And how do you get folks who may not have the capital who deserve to reap the benefits now into that business? I think it's a real challenge. Look, I applaud the mission and the objectives of the drafters of this legislation. I think compensating people who have been victimized by a war on drugs that was very largely racially driven is a noble purpose. Um, And this legislation is an attempt to address it. Will it be successful is an open question. And I think you've identified the single most significant risk associated with the program is financing that social equity cap applicants or social equity licensees will be able to obtain, whether they will be able to obtain it. According to the language in the bill, 
once again, to the credit of the legislature, they've at least made provisions for it. Once again, whether those provisions will be successful is another question. But what the legislation does, does a couple of things. First of all, it creates a social equity fund. That social equity fund is largely financed by charging existing medical marijuana operators a fee, a substantial fee, to transition into adult use businesses so they can sell to the wider market. It also allows people who are awarded social equity license to potentially access low interest and no interest loans through the New York State Urban Development Corporation. Now, there are going to be some, that's where the real trouble, I think, lies. It's a real open question, and I'm hardly an expert in how the New York Urban Development Corporation works, but my understanding is that the corporation can float bonds. Uh, and that those bonds effectively will enable the, this particular corporation to generate revenue to further supplement the fund. I, I don't know that it's quite frankly going to be enough. If, if you start to look at the numbers, so what we recommend a client do, um, even if they're just opening a dispensary, and that's a dispensary and not even necessarily a densely populated urban area where rents tend to be high, we recommend that they raise between a million and $2 million in capital just prior to opening. And that's because of all of your build-out costs, your costs for inventory, and your costs for rent. Rent is probably the largest expense that most of these companies face. Is there going to be $1 or $2 million for 50% of the licenses that are awarded to retail licensees? Because the, pro the objective of the legislation is to award 50% of the licenses to people who meet these social equity criteria. It's a lot of money, and that doesn't even include the amount of capital that social equity licensees would have to raise for cultivations and processing. A cultivation facility could require a company to raise as much as 50 million dollars. So you start to realize that the capital, the burdens that, are, that some of these companies are going to face are going to be great. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure whether New York State has adequately addressed that burden. I, my hope is that the legislators and the executives who are responsible for its implementation will be flexible and versatile and will be willing to improvise as they recognize some of these hurdles. Matt Schweber again with the law firm Feuerstein and Kulik, LLP. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and we can't thank you enough for joining us on the Legislative Gazette this week. Thank you very much, David, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2125. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.